welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Next month, it will be 40 years since Sir Edward Yude became governor of Hong Kong. Tasked with liaising between London and Beijing on the future of Hong Kong, his job was hugely stressful and he would die of heart disease in Beijing in 1986, the only governor to die in harness. A workaholic and Sinophile, he did four tours as a diplomat in China. His first as a young man involved him negotiating with the PLA for the release of HMS Amethyst, which was held for 10 weeks before the ship escaped down the Yangtze River. His time later as governor also witnessed a financial crisis which resulted in the Hong Kong dollar being pegged to the US dollar. Author and China analyst Mark O'Neill was in Beijing when Edward Yu died. He noticed the flag at the embassy was at half-mast as he cycled past. He joins me this weekend on Hong Kong Heritage to talk about Edward Yu's life. Most of his career was in the foreign office, especially in China. He was four assignments in Beijing. He was ambassador of Britain from 74 to 78. So, yeah, I heard of him as ambassador, but I never ran into him uh, until he became the governor. And actually, I have some personal connection because, as you may know, he died of a heart attack early in the morning of December 5th, 1986. So at that time, I was working in Beijing and I cycled to my office each day and my cycle ride took me past the UK embassy. So that morning, I was cycling past and I noticed the the flag was on half mast. Well, this is very unusual. It it must mean that the, the Queen had passed away or some very important person had passed away. So when I got to the office, I mentioned it to my colleagues and we, we inquired with the embassy and then we learned that Suyud was there and he passed away of a heart attack during the night. So when you passed the UK embassy, as you say, the flag was halfway down the mast, meaning it's usually a sign of respect for somebody, as you say, somebody important who has died. And then were you actually reporting on it? Oh, yes, of course, because the negotiations between Hong Kong and China, the shape of the Hong Kong government after 1997, this was a very big subject. And we were reporting on it all the time. And Sir Edward was a key person in these negotiations. So, yes, indeed, it was a very big story. Sir Edward Yude will be obviously looking majority at his work in Hong Kong, but he was a lifelong foreign office diplomat. So he was that kind of governor when he came to Hong Kong. But where was he born? And what kind of work did he do before Hong Kong? Well, he was born in South Wales, and he went to a grammar school in South Wales. And he retained his Welsh accent throughout his life. And this, as you may know, is quite unusual, because many people like Margaret Thatcher, or Edward Heath, who joined the British establishment and then want to rise in it, they hide their local accent. They learn sort of BBC English accent because they don't want it to be held against them. But in the case of Sir Edward, he didn't. He kept his Welsh accent. Uh, He didn't go to Oxbridge. He went to the London School of Oriental and African Studies, and it was there he learned Chinese. And uh, in 1947, he joined the Foreign Office, and he spent his entire career, his entire life, actually, in the Foreign Office. So his very first posting was to the UK embassy in China, which at that time was in Nanjing, which was the capital under the Kuomintang. So he was there during the Chinese Civil War. I mean, what a time to be there. 
in the two years running up to, of course, the communist victory in China, which resulted in the communists taking over in 1949. So he's there in 1947. And I understand that uh, he also negotiated when the HMS Amethyst came under attack by PLA forces while sailing on the Yangtze River. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, this is very dramatic. You know, it meant that Sir Edward was right on the front line of the Civil War. Now, this ship, the HMS Amethyst, was sent to Nanjing to protect the British embassy and the British citizens in the city. And the PLA said that British warships should not enter the war zone. So it was close to Nanjing, and then it was fired on by PLA artillery on the northern side. And it was devastating fire. 22 of the the sailors on the ship were killed, including the captain. And the ship was grounded, so it couldn't, it couldn't move. The British then sent another ship from Nanjing to rescue it, and this was fired on as well. So it couldn't carry out the rescue. So the ship was held there for 10 weeks. So it was during this 10-week period that Sir Edward, who, remember, is very young at this time, and this is his first foreign assignment, and he stepped forward and he said, I will try to negotiate the release of the ship. So he stepped forward and he negotiated with the PLA commanders and tried to persuade them to release the ship. Now, he didn't succeed, but his efforts were so well regarded by London that he was given an MBE for his work. So this is very unusual for someone so young in his career. Now, in July, the Amethyst was able to escape from where it was. And of course, it had to go down the Yangtze River to safety. And of course, the the PLA controlled both sides of the Yangtze and they were watching out for the ship. So what it did was it, it went very close to a passenger ship, a Chinese passenger ship that was carrying refugees. And so the PLA did actually open fire, but they hit the passenger ship and that went down and many people were drowned. But the Amethyst was able to finally escape and it was not fired upon. And it left the Yangtze River and it ended up in Hong Kong. So it was a very dramatic story. Yes, and a huge challenge, as you say, for Edward Jude right at the start of his foreign office career. What a thing. And uh, he spoke obviously fluent Chinese. Would you have described him as a, a Sinophile? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, he had four tours in China. So he invested a great deal of time and energy in this. And remember, he lived in China in the most dramatic periods. I mean, he lived there during the Mao era. And of course, China was an extremely strange country then for someone like him. And he was there as ambassador between 74 and 78. And that was a very dramatic period because in 76, Zhou Enlai died, Mao Zedong died. Then there was the overthrow of the Gang of Four. So he he had a frontline seat on all these events. And at that time, the outside world knew very little about what was going on. Nobody knew what would happen after Mao died, what sort of government it would be. Would it be the same kind of government as before? So people like Sir Edward were critical in reporting and observing what was going on and explaining to the outside world what all these changes meant. So he stayed on till 1978. So that's when he left Beijing as ambassador. And uh, so I think we can say no Hong Kong governor in history understood the PRC as well as he did when he became governor in 1982. I mean, from Beijing, he went back to London. He was he was made head of Asian affairs. 
So he remained very much in touch and on top of Chinese matters and Hong Kong matters in London. We'll continue on with this early time of his career because, you know, when we think that on the 5th of December 1986, when he does unfortunately die of a heart attack, he's actually only 62. So it's, um, you know, as you say, he starts very young and very dramatically with the HMS Amethyst situation. And then it's interesting because when I think of communist China and the fact that uh, all of these Catholic missions, of course, are thrown out or just general Christian missions are thrown out and foreigners are all moving. You know, you've got all of the, the businesses coming down from Shanghai to Hong Kong. You don't actually think that possibly there is a foreign presence there, but there was always going to be a British diplomatic presence there. Yeah, well, well, as you rightly say, during the Maoist period, there were almost no Westerners in China. So the Western world relied for its information on largely on diplomats. There were a small number of journalists, but they were mostly thrown out during the Cultural Revolution. So Sir Edward Yud, a man with his knowledge of China and his experience there, I mean, he, he was absolutely invaluable because there was no one else to ask. There was no one else knew knew what was going on. And of course, during the Cultural Revolution, the British embassy was attacked in Beijing and it was burned down and all the diplomats had to run away. So there was an additional element to this. I mean, on the one hand, he was an observer reporting on China. But on the other hand, especially in the Cultural Revolution, nobody knew what would happen. It was a period of great anti-imperialism. And when the embassy was burned down, the Chinese police were outside, but they didn't stop it. They allowed it to happen. So it had a p- official approval. So the diplomats working there, especially for the imperialist countries, they always had to have this in mind. Would they be safe there? So this was an additional level of stress for them. During his work at the uh, British Embassy in Beijing, as you say, including 1974 to 1978 as ambassador, would he have had any contact with the Chinese government? Very, very limited. Mao's vision of China was one which was largely self-reliant. There wasn't very much which the embassy could do. There were very few British citizens working in China. And the Chinese government really didn't have much need for contact with Western governments. So the contact would have been official events in which the British diplomats and other foreign diplomats would be invited to attend. They would meet the foreign ministry officials uh, sometimes. But yeah, it was a very limited contact. So I think the diplomats were largely China watchers. That is to say, they read the uh, Chinese newspapers, they listened to Chinese radio, they observed what was going on in Beijing, and they tried to form a judgment about what was going on. But it was very limited material to work with, and they had very little contact with Chinese officials, and of course, even less with ordinary Chinese. So it was very difficult to form a good judgment. Edward Yude spends four terms of duty at the UK embassy in Beijing, so this key dramatic period the death of Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong in 1976, the overthrow of the Gang of Four and the rise of Deng Xiaoping. He goes back to London. He's head of the Asia Affairs, which is a very key post. And he was only 62 when he died. So his health at that time was not so good. In 1982, he had heart bypass surgery 
And I think this is because of the nature of his work. And he was a very serious man. He was a, he was a workaholic. He was very controlled, very calm. He didn't lose his temper. I think he was not a very charismatic person. So I think these years of working there took a toll on him. And so this is why he needed the heart bypass surgery. So from a medical aspect, maybe he shouldn't have taken the job as governor of Hong Kong because it was going to require a lot of negotiations with Beijing over the future of Hong Kong. And this was going to be even more stressful than what he'd done before. And uh, as I understand, not many diplomats wanted the position because they knew what it would involve and they, they knew that there would be many conflicts and contradictions and they would be in the center of it. But uh, Sir Edward stepped forward and he put his name forward and he was chosen for this post. And the British government offered him full-time medical team in view of his heart condition, but he refused. So when he came here and he started to join the negotiations, the stress was very much as we have outlined. He took 28 official trips to Beijing and 22 official trips to London. So I think we can imagine the, the stress he was under. He had to go to London, report to his bosses there tell them the negotiating position, hear what they had to say. Then he has to go to Beijing, negotiate with the PRC side, hear their negotiating position. And as we know, the, the negotiations were extremely difficult and there were many points of conflict. So I think it was an extremely stressful time, for, well, for all the negotiators, but particularly for him. Here's the voice of Sir Edward Ude giving his governor inaugural speech in 1982. I'm very grateful for the kind words and for the warm welcome which has been extended to us both. I have just taken the oaths of office as Governor and Commander-in-Chief. I am proud and honoured to have been appointed to this position. I recognise the heavy responsibility for the good government and the well-being of the people of Hong Kong which this office bears and I pledge that I will do my utmost to fulfill it. Hong Kong has much of which it can be proud. In a highly competitive world, the enterprise of its manufacturers and businessmen and the skills and applications of its workforce have brought it prosperity and success. This in turn has provided the means for remarkable achievements in housing a rapidly increasing population, in the spread of education, the improvement of medical and social services, better recreational and cultural facilities, and impressive transport works. But what can you tell me about Pamela Yude? Well, she was also a, Ch a China scholar. So she was a wonderful support for him during his career. And of course, being the wife of a diplomat is a rather special. I mean, it's very difficult to have your own career if you're married to a diplomat. It means you're constantly moving your home from one, one city to another. And I think you have to accept the rules and the regulations of being a diplomat's wife. You have to attend a lot of social functions, which you may or may not enjoy. And you have to be very careful what you say. You mustn't reveal secrets about what your husband is doing or secrets about national affairs. You know, it's not at all an easy vocation. But as I understand, Pamela was an ideal wife 
for such a man and a great support to him. So he's here as Hong Kong governor from May 1982. We've talked there about, you know, the fact that he's making these multiple trips to Beijing and also to London, negotiating the future of Hong Kong. But what were some of the other challenges that faced him during his tenure here? Well, I mean, when he arrived, the immediate challenge for him was not to do with the PRC. It was to do with the Hong Kong economy. It was a very bad time. The Hong Kong dollar devalued by 28% in 1983. 94 deposit-taking companies closed down, and the government had to rescue seven licensed banks. Hong Kong was in a state of economic crisis. On the 17th of October 1983, the Hong Kong dollar was officially pegged to the US dollar, at a rate of 7.8 Hong Kong dollars to one US dollar, officially switching back to the currency board system. And this was a very smart decision. And as we know, until today, it's still picked. Whilst Sir Edward himself was not an economist, he was advised to do this and he made the decision to, to, to do this. So I think that's a very important contribution he made to Hong Kong. And he also introduced reforms to the financial regulatory system here to stabilize the, the markets. So I think we can say he played an important role in making Hong Kong such an important financial center, which it's remained ever since then. So this was the challenges he faced immediately on his arrival before the question of negotiating with China over Hong Kong's future. I mean, you say that he was an absolute workaholic. Do we know anything about his personality outside of that in terms of, you know, you said that he was a very serious individual. Did he have any hobbies? Yes, he liked bird watching. So he went to Maipo Marshes whenever he could and got away from it all and watched the birds there. And as a result, there's an aviary named after him in Hong Kong Park in honor of his bird watching. He was, you know, intellectually very powerful. So he was much better informed than most of the people who were working for him. Now, as you say, he had Welsh roots. And in fact, he was Hong Kong's only Welsh governor. Yeah, well, as we know, the, the, the British colonial system was quite dependent on a small group of people. I mean, they tended to recruit people from nobility, from professional classes, the wealthy, often children of, of people who, who had been in the colonial service themselves. Uh, many of them had been to private schools. And many of them have been to Osbridge. So that would be the model. So in this sense, uh, Yude was an outsider. But due to his hard work, his competence and his mastery of Chinese and China, you know, he had a good status. How is he regarded by the Hong Kong population? I think the best testimony of this is after he died, because he came back to, to Hong Kong and uh, there was a state funeral held for him. And thousands of Hong Kong people lined the streets for this funeral. And here is what the South China Morning Post's Virginia Mayor wrote about the first state funeral here. The band of the Royal Hong Kong Police struck up the national anthem as Sir Edward's coffin was carried out of Government House on the shoulders of ten Coldstream Guardsmen and placed in a specially converted army vehicle bearing the Governor's insignia before being escorted in solemn procession to St John's Cathedral for a 30-minute service. The procession was punctuated by a 17-gun salute fired from HMS Tamar, the first going off as Sir Edward's coffin emerged from Government House, with the others following at one-minute intervals. There was a huge outpouring of emotion among the Hong Kong public, and I think the reason is that they saw him as a person who was negotiating for them. 
As you know, the negotiations were conducted between the UK government and the PRC government. So the Hong Kong people had no place in the negotiations, and many British diplomats would have preferred negotiations entirely in secret. Yud was aware that the Hong Kong people had developed, had changed. They were increasingly demanding a participation in the government, a participation in their own future. So whilst he was very limited in what he could do, he couldn't invite Hong Kong people to take part in, in the negotiations, he did as much as he could to involve them. So he gave consultations all the time to Exco of the negotiations and what was going on. And he was very aware of this rising demand among the, the Hong Kong population for participation. And of course, uh, many people in Hong Kong were uh, refugees from China. They didn't think well of the PRC. So they were very afraid of what would happen. So I think within the limited space that he had, he did the most he could to include the Hong Kong point of view. And I think that's why the public sympathy for him was so strong and there was such a big turnout. And of course, it's extremely dramatic. I mean, there he was in Beijing for negotiations. He's at the British embassy in Beijing and he dies of a heart attack, only 62. So there's a man on the job, negotiating Hong Kong's future, and he dies in the saddle. So it's very, very dramatic. Yeah, so how did Beijing react at that point? Well, the, the negotiations, as, as you know, were very contentious. And the Beijing view was that this is a matter entirely between the PRC government and the London government. The Hong Kong people have no part to play. That's their view. So whenever the Hong Kong government tried to involve the Hong Kong people or reflect the views of the Hong Kong people, Beijing became angry and there would be editorials in the pro-Beijing press denouncing him and pro-Beijing figures here would denounce him. So, of course, this added to the stress level. And of course, within the British Foreign Office, there were different views as to what to do. And many people said there's no point to involve Hong Kong people because, you know, they have no right to take part. And therefore, we must work smoothly with Beijing and reach an agreement with Beijing. So within the, the Foreign Office also, Sir Edward would have faced a lot of criticism. It was a very tough position to be in. So he was, he's in conflict with Beijing on many issues, and he's, he's in conflict also with people within his own government. The Chinese-language Mingpao newspaper wrote in an editorial after Edward Yude's death and compared him to Liang Zuge, a chancellor of the state of Shuhan during the Three Kingdoms period, who had pledged to work diligently on state affairs until death. Yeah, and Mr. Liang is a famous official, and what he's famous for is exactly the qualities that Sir Edward had, which is a very able and dedicated official, working diligently for the government, workaholic, and working until the end of his life. So that is a great compliment to pay to Sir Edward. And of course, Ming Bao then, as it is today, is a very important newspaper in Hong Kong, and it reflects the opinion of many people, especially teachers, intellectuals, professors. So yeah, that's a very great compliment. And I, I think that shows the high esteem in which he was held here. So Edward also had the idea of setting up a, a secondary school here. Yeah, well, he was a man of many parts. When he arrived here, there were only two universities here in Hong Kong. And this meant that many Hong Kong students had to go abroad to the UK, US, elsewhere for their tertiary education. 
And of course, that meant only those whose families were well off enough could go. And the Hong Kong economy was changing. You know, it had been a manufacturing center until the opening of China in 1978. Most of the Hong Kong factories then moved from here to Guangdong and Fujian provinces. So the Hong Kong economy was changing and it needed new kinds of talent, new kinds of people. And it didn't need workers anymore. It needed qualified and specialized people. So he, he said Hong Kong needs to have another university. So he started working on this project in 1986. And this is the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. So, of course, he died before it was set up. But it was uh, set up in 1991. And since then, you know, it's become very famous. And now Hong Kong is very well endowed with universities. You don't have to go abroad to study. And they turn out thousands of qualified people every year. So he was completely correct in his analysis of Hong Kong's economy and what it would need in the future. So this is another thing for which we should praise him. When he died in 1986, what kind of legacy do you think he left? Well, today we know now all the things that have happened since then. You know, we know all the conflicts that have happened in Hong Kong. And in a sense, all of this were envisioned by him because he could see already the differences in Hong Kong opinion, the increasing demand for representation, for voting, direct participation in the Hong Kong government, reluctance to accept administrators sent from, from Beijing. So he could see all that. So in 1985, he did introduce elections, I mean, not direct, but indirect elections to LegCo, because he felt that was the best, the best he could do, you know, within the constraints of the time. And of course, governors that followed him, they introduced more radical forms of election. The most, of course, were by the last governor, Chris Patton. Now, many in the Foreign Office believed that, that was a big mistake because they said China would never accept direct elections. And so you're instituting reforms which will be undone after 1997. After his death, there was set up a Sir Edward Ude Memorial Fund, and a lot of members of the Hong Kong public contributed to this fund. And so this fund now, it's a very important uh, way to fund uh, scholarships for Hong Kong students and to fund research. So th this is perhaps his most public legacy. I mean, the, the university obviously is a big one, but this one is one that bears his name and, and, and it's, you know, distributes funds every year to students. So many students since then have owed their studies and their research to him. So Sir Edward's funeral was held at the St. John's Cathedral and then he was cremated and his ashes were taken back and buried in Canterbury Cathedral. And there's a plaque to him there. There is also a plaque to him in St. John's Cathedral. So those who would like to, you know, show their respect to him, they can do it either in Canterbury or St. John's Cathedrals. In terms of governors, uh, you've spent decades in this region, a lot of time on the mainland. How do you perceive Sir Edward Ude? Yeah, I, I greatly respect him. You know, he lived during a very difficult period. Being a diplomat in Beijing in those years was extremely difficult. The environment was hostile, you know, even to the extent of the embassy being burned down. So he, he lived there during during that, that time. It didn't deter him from studying and learning about China. And I think he contributed greatly to the agreements which... Britain and China signed over Hong Kong. So, yeah, I, I greatly admired him. I, I think he, he did a great deal in his life. 
and, you know, earns the respect of all Hong Kong people. I then asked Mark O'Neill what he felt would have been the reaction of Beijing to the death of Edward Ude. In an official way, they would, of course, express their condolence for his death, especially at such a young age and while he was still working. But of course, on the political level, they were critical of him. You know, they were critical of anybody who wanted to involve Hong Kong people in the, in the negotiations. And you, you, you remember, you know, Britain is an imperial power. You know, they did a lot of harm to China. He's a representative of this power. So politically, he, he wouldn't have uh, been well remembered. But personally, yes, I think they, they expressed their condolence to him and, and in, in a polite way. Mark O'Neill talking there on the life of Hong Kong Governor Sir Edward Ude. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.